0: Thanks, Thomas, for your prayers and uh, introduction. Um, Before I get started, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that my mom and dad are here visiting from Georgia over there. (laughs) Thanks, mom, for coming. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Um, So yes, I'm very nervous. Doug, I'm going to need your help this morning. Thank you. Um, And before I really get started, I wanted to share something about myself that I think is relevant for our passage today. Like one of the disciples that we'll be talking about, I tend to be a very skeptical person. My wife, Amanda, will tell you that I have a compulsive need to fact-check everything she tells me. I don't think it's quite that extreme, but we'll just say I like to see proof before I believe something. So, you'll see in a minute why, because of my skeptical nature, I'm especially glad to have the privilege of unpacking John chapter 20 for you. This chapter focuses on Christ's resurrection and three separate appearances that he made to Mary and his disciples before his ascension. Unlike the high priestly prayer from John 17 that Andrew covered in his first sermon a few weeks ago, I'm grateful that this passage is much more simple and straightforward. John even ends the chapter by telling us exactly why he wrote it, as well as the rest of the Gospel of John, uh, which really simplifies my job of sticking to the meaning of the text as I teach it. So let me pray real quick, and we'll get right to it. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity that I have to teach your word. Lord, I am not adequate to this task. Um, I can do nothing without you. And Lord, I just pray that right now that the Spirit would help me and guide my words and that, Lord, I especially pray that the Spirit would be doing a work in the hearts of those people who don't know you yet today, that the good news would have an impact on their lives. Lord, help me as I teach. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so you've already heard these verses referenced several times during our series on John, and I know many of you have them memorized. So feel free to join me as I read uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. We're jumping forward a little bit here. Those verses read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the main point of my sermon this morning is simply a summary of those two verses, and that is the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign proving that he is the Christ, the Son of God, in whose name we can have life. I'll say that one more time. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign proving that he is the Christ, the Son of God, in whose name we can have life. But before we focus on the resurrection, let's go through a quick refresher on the other signs that John is referring to when he says, these are written in verse 31. Those are the first seven signs that John witnessed and recorded for us so that we can believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and by believing, have life in his name. For the first sign, Jesus transforms water into wine during a wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, For his second sign, he healed the son who was near death of an official from Capernaum. He healed again for his third time. This time it was a lame man by a pool in Jerusalem. For his fourth fourth sign, he feeds the 5,000 beside the Sea of Galilee with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Then for his fifth sign, Jesus walks across the water to join his disciples in a boat on their way to Capernaum. For a sixth sign, he gave sight to a man born blind, and even more miraculously, he heals the man's spiritual blindness so that he could see the truth of who Jesus is. And finally, he raises the putrefied corpse of his friend Lazarus from the dead. So many of us have heard about and studied these miracles so many times that we take them for granted. We've lost the wonder that should accompany such awesome works of God. But through these seven signs, Jesus transforms our approach to God. He demonstrates his authority over sickness and judgment. He teaches us that he is the bread of life, the light of the world, and the good shepherd. And finally, that he is the resurrection and the life. Which brings us back to chapter 20, the resurrection, and the main point of the sermon. That the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign proving that he is the Christ the Son of God, in whose name we can have life. You may be wondering why I chose to call it the ultimate sign. Well, let's listen to what Paul says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17. So again, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17. Those are powerful words from Paul, that our faith is in vain or futile, that, um, that we are still in our sins if Christ has not been raised. To emphasize this point even more, let's hear from Paul again as he is preaching in Athens, a city proud of her great thinkers who are consumed by idolatry, about 20 years after the crucifixion. Let's go to Acts 17:30 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So the resurrection is God's assurance to us that there is indeed a day of judgment coming a day when we will be called to account before Christ and our only defense will be the blood of Christ. If that's not enough to convince you of the importance of the resurrection, take a moment to think about it logically. There really are only two possibilities here. One, the resurrection never happened, which means Jesus was either a liar or a madman. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that right at that moment. Thank you. (laughs) Or two, Christ is who he says he is, and he really was crucified for our transgressions. <laughs> nice. We have uh, a visitor. Which times well with the point where I just hit my screen and lost my spot. <laughs> okay so two either he's a liar or a madman or two he is who he says he is and he was crucified for our transgressions buried and rose from the dead three days later and if that's true then it's all true it's true that we are all sinners condemned to death in desperate need of the saving grace of our loving father John 3.16 is true that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's also true that you better not wait until that judgment day to accept his gift of salvation because on that day it will tragically be too late. Thankfully, our God is a gracious God and he doesn't leave us in the dark. Here in John, he provides us with clear eyewitness testimony of the resurrection that we can arrive at a reasoned belief that Christ is who he says he is and the whole thing is true. So let's look at four proofs of the resurrection found in John chapter 20. Grab some water. All right, so we're going to look first at uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So here we see a still grieving Mary Magdalene returning to the tomb early Sunday morning. We know from the other gospel accounts of the same morning that she was traveling with other women as well, carrying spices to anoint the body. It was three days after the crucifixion and after the Sabbath had passed, so now it would have been permissible to visit the tomb. But when she arrived, Mary found the stone rolled away and made the very reasonable assumption that someone had taken the body. So she immediately went to tell Peter and John what she saw. They came running to see for themselves, and what they found is truly remarkable. Imagine this for a moment: if you were planning to steal the body, would you take the time to remove the cloths and li- remove the clothes and leave them at the scene of the crime? No, of course not. You would just grab the body and run. That's why John took the time to describe the linen cloths that Peter and John saw lying neatly there, because it is strong evidence that the body of Christ was not stolen from the tomb. Now consider who stood the most to lose if the growing number of Christ's followers were further emboldened by a belief that Christ rose from the dead. Look at the conversation that the Pharisees have with Pilate in Matthew twenty-seven, sixty-two through 66 And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Clearly, the Pharisees were intent on holding on to the power and influence they had over the Jewish people. So much so that they had an innocent man crucified. And now, as we see here in Matthew, they knew that Jesus himself claimed that he would rise from the dead. But, of course, they didn't believe that he actually would. They were just afraid that his followers would steal the body and hide it to make it look like he rose from the dead. Apparently, Pilate shared their concern and agreed to post guards, and they made the tomb as secure as they could. But Pilate's guards and the Pharisees' precautions and even death were not enough to keep Jesus in the tomb. You see, as we learned last week, Jesus had the authority to lay down his life, and as the empty tomb proves, he had the authority to take it up again. The second proof of the resurrection we will look at are, is in uh, verses 11 through 18. So that's John 20, 11 through 18. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So here we see Mary having returned to the tomb, weeping in her grief that is probably magnified by the fact that the tomb is empty and she doesn't yet know why. Then Jesus, in his mercy, doesn't leave her grieving long. He appears, but she doesn't recognize him until he calls her name. This is such a beautiful example of our good shepherd calling his sheep by name. He calls her, and she immediately recognizes him as her miraculously resurrected teacher and clings to him. Jesus then sends Mary on a mission, but look at the words he uses in verse 17. He says, Go to my brothers and tell them, I am descending to my father and your father to my God and your God. The great thing about this is that Jesus is emphasizing the new significance of these words. Now that it is finished, now that Jesus had paid the price for our sins on the cross and demonstrated his victory over sin and death by his resurrection, those of us who have placed our trust in him as our Lord and savior can call him our brother and we can call his father, our father because he did the work on our behalf to restore that relationship. The third proof that John records for us is in verses 19 through 23. Look there with me. 19 through 23 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So after Jesus appeared to Mary and Mary reported to the disciples everything she saw and what Jesus said to her, we find them in a locked room for fear of the Jews. What happens next, I think, is an amazing display of the patience of our God. You would expect Jesus to be frustrated, even angry with his disciples. Before the crucifixion, he told them exactly what what was going to happen and not to be afraid. Instead, they abandon him during the trial, and when they should be expectantly waiting for him to return from death, they lock themselves away in fear. But rather than reacting the way we would react, Jesus patiently meets them where they are, appearing to them in their fear and says, peace be with you, and then shows them the scars in his hands and in his side and transforms their fear into gladness. Oh, and don't miss the fact that he appeared to them behind a locked door in the same physical body that was crucified three days before. This reveals some interesting aspects of his glorified resurrected body. That is the same sort of glorified body that those of us who believe will have as we spend eternity enjoying his glory. But that's a topic for another sermon. Okay, finally, let's look at the fourth proof of the resurrection in verses 24 through 29. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, "Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe." Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So most of you have heard the disciple Thomas referred to as Doubting Thomas. Well, that name comes from these verses. He, You see, he wasn't present when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples, and when they shared the good news that Jesus was back, he was skeptical, like me. But I would suggest that being tagged Title for a couple of millennia might be a bit unfair. After all, the other disciples doubted Mary's story until Jesus appeared to them and they saw him in the flesh. But regardless of what we call Thomas, he's not the point of the story. The point is that Jesus knew exactly what Thomas needed in order to believe and he graciously provided it. Jesus appeared in the flesh inside a locked room and gave Thomas opportunity to touch his scars immediately Thomas believed and confessed that belief when he said my Lord and my God confirming that now Thomas finally believed that it was his risen Lord and not simply the wise teacher that many believe him to be but that he is in fact exactly who he says he is in addition to the eyewitness testimony that John recorded for us here in chapter 20 there are many other compelling points that give us confidence that the resurrection was an actual historical event, such as numerous Old Testament prophecies that foretold them that the Messiah would be raised from the dead, many of which Jared talked about last week, as well as the history of the early church, and especially in the martyrdom of the disciples. These men all died proclaiming to their last breath what they knew to be true, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, because they saw him alive and well after the crucifixion with their own eyes. Listen to how they suffered that we could hear the truth proclaimed today. Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at a distant city of Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterward banished to Patmos. Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross whence he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance at Coromandel in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death at Salonica. And finally, Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the emperor Nero. After that, there's nothing I can say to add to their testimony to the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Wrapping up, I'd like to offer a couple of suggestions for how we can respond to this overwhelming evidence. First, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, these words alone won't be enough to change your mind but I pray that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart to convict you of your sin and of your need for Christ's work on the cross on your behalf. As John wrote in verse 31, these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. Don't let grief over something that happened in the past like Mary or fear of what other people might think or do to you like the disciples or skepticism of the truth like Thomas. Don't let these things hold you back from having the joy and peace and life that can only be found in him. If you find yourself thinking that you might be ready to take that next step or you just have more questions, please don't leave here today without talking to one of us. Talk to me, talk to Thomas, talk to Doug or whoever you came here with. I promise you there's nothing we would rather do then have that conversation with you right now. Now for the rest of you, look at First Peter 1, 8 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, if these words from Peter can be said about you and you're already a believer, it's past time to get to work. Look at what Jesus says again in John 20, verse 21 through 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those of us who have life in Christ, he has charged us with this great commission. As you hear nearly every Sunday when Jared quotes Jesus from Matthew 28:18 through 20. Let's look at it again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we, heard that there, when we hear that there are over three billion people in the world today who will be born, who will live, and who will die without ever hearing the name of Jesus, at least for me, it seemed like an impossible task. And it's true, for us it is an impossible task. The good news is Jesus doesn't leave us to accomplish this mission alone. As I just read from John 20 and Matthew 28, we see that he is with us as we go through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, empowering our proclamation of the gospel so that God's word will not return void. For this reason, we can have confidence that through our obedience to Christ's command, he will save his people. So the question we have to ask ourselves is not if we will be obedient to carrying out the Great Commission, but how. We're not all called to go to the nations, but we are all called to be engaged in the Great Commission, whether that's by going or sending or supporting those who are going. So if this is a question you're wrestling with today, wondering What is your role in fulfilling the Great Commission? Again, as before, don't leave here today without talking to us about how we can help each other be on that mission. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us through your word and that we have the aid of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it. Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can have in the resurrection, that it is our assurance of the salvation that you have so freely and graciously provided for us. Lord, I pray that that the Holy Spirit has done a work on the hearts of those who do not have a relationship with you this morning. Lord, don't let anyone leave here this morning who who is struggling with that question about what their relationship is with you. Don't let them leave without having a conversation with someone here. I pray all these things in the name of our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.